Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 96. I gotta shout out my boy Cleland Pearl from the, what are they, the Las Vegas Raiders? What Raiders are they? Oakland? Las Vegas? Where are they, Travis? I don't I even be- know. I believe they're officially now the Las Vegas Raiders. Alright, Las Vegas Raiders, Mo. 804, Richmond, Virginia, proud, of course, had a tremendous career for the Clemson Tigers. Won a couple national championships and is now a total stud for the Raiders. Uh, episode 96 and gracious is it a special episode today. It is a guest that I charged Travis with securing months ago and with great conviction, great patience, great diligence, ultimately was able to land arguably the most accomplished producer of historic footage and timelines of our time, the legendary PBS documentarian Ken Burns. I think he's easily the smartest person that we've had on this podcast. Is that fair to say with no disrespect to the other guest? If you want to feel stupid, talk to this guy. I was so taken with the way that he puts sentences together and so effortlessly uses words that I have to look up in the dictionary and thesaurus. But I'm definitely smarter, and Travis is definitely smarter, and I would venture to say those of you who are about to hear him speak and chronicle his amazing career and specifically the country music documentary that he did late last year that just... I couldn't get enough of 16 hours, eight two-hour episodes of pure excellence. You guys are going to be smarter just by listening to him. His schedule is unbelievable. does not have much time, so the fact that he listened to an old Ohio State Buckeye who mercilessly wore him out to try to get him on our podcast and then spent time with an old country boy from Appalachia is very special to us. And you guys will, you guys will be blown away by how eloquently he speaks, the perspective that he has, and just the spirit within him. That's one thing that I was taken by is the spirit within the man. And we'll get to him in just a minute. But before we get to our conversation with Mr. Burns, let's talk about something that's important to all of us, and that would be oral hygiene. Let's talk about brushing your teeth. 75% of us use old, worn-out bristles that are ineffective, and even more people forget to floss daily. I don't really floss regularly. I should. I know, Travis, you said last time that we discussed Quip. You've done a much better job of flossing. I'm still struggling with it. It can be a struggle sometimes, especially during this quarantine. You're just eating crappy food and you forget sometimes that some of your your daily hygiene can go by the wayside when you're not leaving your house and you're just lounging around in your shorts and T-shirt. And so it's a good reminder that we still need to keep up this uh, the important hygiene during this quarantine. I mean, floss. I mean good, good health starts with good habits. And Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials you need to brush and floss better. The Quip electric toothbrush has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute routine. And there's even a sized-down version designed for kids. Cameron came downstairs a couple days ago. He's like, Dad, you're going to be proud of me. I'm always on that boy for what? Brush his teeth. He's 14. 
Like he's 14 in the middle of a quarantine with braces. Like, come on, dude. You got to brush your teeth, man. Got to brush your teeth for a long time. Got to make sure your oral hygiene is up to par because it's important, man. It's important. He said, Dad, you're going to be proud of me. I brushed for two full minutes. I'm proud of him for that. If he had Quip, he could do it every day. Paired with Quip's anti-cavity toothpaste in mint or watermelon, you get all the ingredients teeth actually need and none they don't. Quip also has an eco-friendly refillable floss with a dispenser you keep for life. An expanding string that helps to clean in between. I'm a poet and I didn't even know it. Quip brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5 each. A friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health and shipping costs you $0. Shipping is free. Join more than 3 million happy customers and practice good oral care easily and affordably with Quip, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash America right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash America. That's getquip.com slash America. Quip. The Good Habits Company. Speaking of good habits, a good habit in my life is listening to the Stupidity Podcast. All you got to do is check out our guy Stugatz every single week to get your fill of laughter. I would call it insight, but I'm not necessarily certain that's what it is. Definitely introspective. <laughs> he's the opposite of Ken Burns. My guy, I mean, he's just bored. He's bored at home. He's cranking out podcasts left and right. And finally, speaking of Travis spending all this time running down these guests, it took him forever to get gots, but guess what? We got him. You guys are going to hear him on Marty Smith's America, and it's a stew gots that you guys don't know every day. You guys know the wild heathen beast who's running around with his hair on fire all the time. This is a different person. I wanted to dig a little deeper into the path and the person that I know as a friend, not just as a personality on television and radio. Y'all are going to love that one coming up here in a week or two. Download and subscribe to Stupidity and Marty Smith's America wherever you get your podcasts. And now, without further ado, one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. This is Marty Smith's America, the Cleveland Feral episode with legendary PBS documentarian Ken Burns. Mr. Burns, when do you recall your fascination with documenting history the way you have starting? Well, you know, it's interesting. My dad was an anthropologist. That's the study of man. But he was also an amateur still photographer. And my very first memory as a child is of him building a dark room in the basement of our tract house in a development in Newark, Delaware, where he was teaching at the University of Delaware, and then later being in his strong left arm as his right arm manipulated the smelly chemicals in the weird red lights uh, as you watch the magic of a picture coming up. I'd always been interested in reading history and not fiction when I was growing up, and all of it came together when I went to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts um, in the spring of 70, uh, fall of 71, 
and met a lot of people who'd taken my dream of becoming a filmmaker, a feature filmmaker, and reminded me that there is as much drama in what is and what was, that is to say, our present and our past, as anything the human imagination makes up. And so it set me on my course towards doing documentary, set me on my course doing it in a way that was dramatic and not kind of didactic and, and, and boring as if it was castor oil, you know, the way most history is, and focusing on that history. The word history is mostly made up of the word story plus high, which is a wonderful greeting. And so I've spent, you know, the last uh, nearly 50 years trying to figure out how to be a filmmaker and how to tell stories and, and specifically in American history. As I was studying for this, I read about you losing your mother as a young boy yeah. at 11 years old. How did that shape you, that moment? It, it, well, you know, first of all, it's not so much the moment is that she had been sick for eight or nine years before that. So I didn't really have a childhood. There was never really any moment when there wasn't this shadow passed long across our tiny family and the kind of misery and anxiety and worry that that created, I know is familiar to everyone listening. Um, nobody is without the loss or the sorrows that take place inevitably in life. Um, I remember a, a few months after she died uh, in April of 1965, so I have now been without a mother for 55 years, which to me is intolerable. My dad let me stay up late to watch a movie on a school night and he started to cry, and I'd never seen my dad cry, and it was at that moment that I knew I wanted to be a film, because clearly the movies had given him storytelling, had given him a safe harbor, a safe haven to express what he could not express to his sons, to his friends, to, to the world, and he wasn't crying for the movie. I remember what it was called Odd Man Out with James Mason about the Irish Troubles and a uh, really, really wonderful film. It wasn't that. It was, it was the fact that it allowed the movies permit a kind of open heart surgery, of uh, a metaphorical open heart surgery. And when I watched that happen, I knew that's what I wanted to be. But that meant being a Hollywood director. What I thought I would try to do in the course of my professional life is 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 try to communicate to people that the laws of storytelling are the exact same for Steven Spielberg as they are for me. He can make stuff up, and I can't. But the laws of how drama unfolds, how characters are introduced and developed, apply to me as equally as they do to him. Beautiful. It's funny that you say that, that you saw your father cry for the first time. I, too, lost my mother really young. I wasn't 11. I was 21, and she died of breast cancer as well. But yes. music was that emotional vehicle for me, and specifically country music. And I will, we'll get to that in a, in a minute when we get to your amazing well, work an, on the country music documentary. thing, Mr. Smith, that my brother, who is also a documentary filmmaker, said to me once that filmmaking and film editing, we use a lot of musical analogies. And so I think that a good film, when it dies and goes to heaven, is music. And so I think that there's a huge relationship between 
actual music and what we try to do in films. You know, I'll say to the editors, hold that another beat, cut that off a beat sooner. Let's let's let it uh, rest. That that there should be a longer note. You know, things like that. And so there's a kind of orchestration that takes place all in the service of what Wynton Marsalis, the great jazz trumpeter, said is the art of the invisible. He says that in country music. He says that, that this is the art of the invisible. It gets into you quicker than anything else. So I think in some way all art aspires to music. I wish I could speak as eloquently as you do. Wow. Your production style and direction style is iconic. How did you develop it, and how has it evolved over time? Well, I think it, it is based in that you know childhood revelation about a still photograph. That's the kind of DNA of what I do. And I'm looking at an old photograph, and I want to trust that it is an accurate representation of a once very active moment. It may be frozen. It may be sepia. It may seem to my colleagues like something you want to hold at arm's length and get to footage or a talking head or some bells and whistles or some trick. But what if you looked at those soldiers and could hear them tramping, could hear the cannon firing, could hear the bayonets uh, rattling, could 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 feel the wind in the trees, the whinny of the horses, the all of that. And so I was looking at a still photograph the way that feature filmmaker in me had uh, wanted to look at a master shot that included a a, a long shot, included a medium shot, a, a, a close-up, a pan, a tilt, a reveal of a detail, whatever it might be. So I treated that still photograph as if it was real. And then I not only looked at it to see what what the what the dramatic dynamics were within, you know, if you tilt up um, uh, uh, two revolvers in the waistband of somebody from the Civil War, and, and it's got immediately a sense of information, two revolvers just stuck in the waistband, and then you tilt up, and it's some angelic-faced kid. Boy, that's a story right there. Or, or reverse that. Start with an angelic-faced kid, and then tilt down to those revolvers. You've got a story happening right there. You know, uh, Ernest Hemingway is supposed to have written the shortest novel ever, which goes, baby shoes, for sale, never worn. Right? I mean, to wow. me, these photographs, are those kinds of stories waiting be, to be told. And that you don't want to just look at them and find the visual dynamics. You want to listen to them. As I was saying, are those, are, are those you know, uh, horses whinnying? Are, are the, are the, is the bat cracking in baseball? The, the crowd's cheering? Is the ice in the glass on the bar in the jazz club tinkling? You know, what, what do you add to it? What are the layers? I mean, in some... Scenes that we had in the Tet Offensive in our series on Vietnam, in the Battle of Gettysburg, in the Civil War series, we might have 150, 250 different soundtracks going at the same moment, just elements of sound. You never notice it by the time it gets squeezed out of your little speaker, no matter how good it is on your home system, you may not hear that. But I can tell you, if you come to one of our playbacks where they've got the subwoofer and the floor, uh, <laughs> boy, you, you think you're there. And it scares the hell out of you. I hope this doesn't seem redundant to, to get into the process, given what you're saying there. But what's the process of actually choosing the film subject that you want to chronicle? I don't want to be glib, but in some ways, the simple answer is they choose me. I am 
like Samoa or Guam, an American possession. I am possessed by my country, by its story, uh, its history. I make films on the United States, the U.S., but I also make films about us. That is to say, the lowercase two-letter personal pronoun us, the we and our and so I'm looking for stories that engage both the larger picture, but also the intimate bottom-up story of so-called ordinary people doing things. And so in some ways, they, these, these projects knock on the door and say, you have to do me, you know, whatever it might be. Once you get in, the problem with most productions are that they then turn into a kind of business model. Well, we're going to research for three weeks, we're going to write for three weeks, and then we're going to produce a script which will inform the shooting and the editing. We never stop researching. We never stop writing. It keeps us willing to learn something new. I've got a neon sign in, in, in lowercase cursive in my uh, editing room that says it's complicated. Because filmmakers are notoriously saying to themselves and each other, oh, that scene works, let's not touch it. But if we find out new information on whatever subject it might be, country music or Vietnam or the Civil War or Brooklyn Bridge, my first film, you've got to be able to integrate it. And you've got to be able to have the flexibility to do it. So we never stop researching. We never stop writing. We're corrigible to the end. It attenuates our process. It took us 10 and a half years to do Vietnam. It took us eight years to do country music. But at the end, what you have are layers, complexity. It isn't just a subject sort of floating along on the surface of things. You're aware as an audience of the undertow and the contradiction that attends life. I mean, you understand that in your own life, in your own relationships with your own kids, uh, with your own parents. Uh, but somehow we want uh, some sort of simplicity in our drama, but it's not satisfying. You can just so much kind of marvel stories you can tell. But what if not every villain is evil and not every hero is perfect? And that becomes a really interesting dynamic, which we've tried to apply to all the work we've done. You know, the juxtaposition of the simplicity that you seek, but the complexity of life that that hopefully creates a simple storyline that's easy to follow. Yes. So, yes, I ask you simply, what makes a good documentary? Is it that? Well, I think, yes, I think so. I think so. You know, what you have is the possibility of communicating complex information in what's relatively simple. We've known the laws of storytelling since Aristotle wrote it down in an essay you were probably made to read in um, high school called college called Poetics. You know, it's a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, there are character developments. There's a protagonist and an antagonist. There's characters uh, reaching a climax. The plot line reaches a climax. There's a denouement, the epilogue, the coda, whatever you want to call it, at the end. And it's not that anybody's filling into this cookie-cutter stuff, but I know you've had the experience and your listeners have had experience of going to a movie, being introduced to a character in its act one and going, oh, she's dead. Or, oh, he's not going to make it out of here. Yep. So, you know, we've got a really, really, really complex um, uh, system. And yet somebody once told me, uh, you know, Hollywood has only six plots, right? There's only really six plots, you know, and that they follow that religiously. And that's why I found, to answer your, your much more important question, 
about a, a good documentary is that though it has to follow the laws of storytelling, as all storytelling does, if somebody says, honey, how was your day? You don't go, I backed slowly down the driveway, <laughs> avoiding the garbage can at the curb. You cut to the chase unless somebody T-bones you. And then in that case, that's exactly how you tell it. So we, we obey it, but we're liberated because we're not fitting into these simple, familiar plot lines. Uh, Shelby Foote, the great historian and novelist who helped us on the Civil War series, called me up once and he said, God is the greatest dramatist. And what he meant was that, you know, Abraham Lincoln wins the war, you know, Lee surrenders to Grant on Good Friday, and the next Tuesday, he figures he's got enough time to go to the theater. You can't make that up. No, you can't. You cannot make that up. And every film that I've done has got stuff that you just, the, the people who are unaware of the story just shake their heads and said, I had no idea. And we're really happy to say that even in the last six, seven months, the country music establishment has come to us and said, look, I've spent my life doing this. I had no idea about this. Or how did you find that? Or I, I, got, I, I thought I knew every song by that. Or that picture. That makes us so happy that in some ways we may not be breaking new scholarly ground, but we are actually rearranging the material in a way that's fresh and does something for even the people who are supposed to be jaded and familiar with it all and seen it all. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I fancy myself as a bit of a country music historian because that genre of music, that format shaped my life so dramatically growing up in Appalachia. And I thought I knew every, I, I know a lot about Hank Williams. And we'll, again, we'll get into that in just a couple of minutes, but you had one line in the country music documentary that no matter how well versed, no matter how well educated or studied someone was about the genre, stopped time and brought them off the couch. And that line was, he was 29 years old. Yeah, yeah. That line. You, we spent woo. an entire episode called The Hillbilly Shakespeare um, trying to get to know the era in which this man lived and the man himself. And over several different chapters within a multi-multi-chapter episode, you find out the genius and the heartache and the struggles and the joy of arguably the greatest uh, uh, songwriter in the history of country music. I mean, who, who, can, who can reduce things to their simplicity like he could? You know, Nobody. I got a hot rod Ford and a $2 bill, and I know a place right over the hill. You know, hey, good looking. How's about cooking something up with me? I mean, these, the, the, they seem so simple, but in retrospect, try to sit down and write something that simple or hear that lonesome whippoorwill. He sounds too blue to fly. The midnight train is whining low. I'm so lonesome I could cry. Silence of a falling star lights up a purple sky. And as I wonder where you are, so lonesome I could cry. Come on. I mean, there's nothing like that. Nothing like that. And it comes from a guy who didn't make it to his 30th birthday. And he lived it. He lived every he lived ounce it. of it. And exactly. that's part of the visceral impact is that in his delivery and in his sorrowful, guttural words, 
simple or not, every single person who hears it feels it. I saw an interview you were doing, before, I think in promotion of the country music documentary, where you were you were discussing I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, and you, in fact, had tears in your eyes. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it still does. I mean, I sing that song. I, I've got a, a nine-year-old, and I put her to bed. She'll say, sing it, and she either means that or Johnny Cash's uh, I Still Miss Someone, you know? <laughs> uh, at my door, the leaves are falling. A cold, wild wind will come. Sweethearts walk by together, but I still miss someone. I wonder if she's sorry for leaving what we'd begun. There's someone for me somewhere. Yeah. It's uh, no. Any better than that. And this no. is simple, simple, simple lyrics, you know. But, you know, as, as Larry Gatlin says in our film, nobody knew how to put them together until you know, uh, a Chris Christopherson or a Johnny Cash or a Hank Williams, or let us also say a Dolly Parton or, you know, uh, a Loretta Lynn came by and said, this is how it goes. I mean, I, I can't think of a finer song than Jolene. I mean, yep. Or Loretta Lynn, don't come home and drinking with loving on your mind. This is nobody in rock and roll or folk was dealing with these tough topics, but this was in this simplistic thing. And that's one of the stuff we tried to dynamite in the uh, in the series is that everybody for commerce and convenience puts you know country in its own little silo and puts blues over it and puts jazz here and puts pop here you know whatever it is they're all together there's no passport required all the musicians travel when Ray Charles was given creative control of an album for the very first time in his distinguished soul R and B whatever you want to call a career. He does modern sounds in country and Western music. And the number one song of 1962 is I Can't Stop Loving You by Don Gibson, a country song. And listen to it. It's a country song. It's a yeah. it's a blues soul singer singing it. But it's still a country song. And that tells you something. And Hank Williams, the subject of who we're talking about mostly, he said he learned everything from Rufus T. Tut Payne, a, a black uh, blues musician. You know, I mean. The cross-border stuff, you're dealing in sports and where the question of race comes up and the, and the American dynamic and the crucible of what takes place in a country that is, is proclaimed itself free, but there is a population that has a muscle memory of being unfree in a free land. That sets up a lot of interesting things. What it all, you know, some of them are negative. We know what that is. But a lot of them are hugely positive. We get jazz out of that. We get blues out of that. We get, therefore, almost every other musical form that's ever come down the pike. And if you think about American classical music, you'd add that too. Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin is, as you know, influenced by jazz and, and American, African-American folk idioms as anything else. So we're all connected. So the thing going back to the us, the U.S. and us is what I've learned over 45 years of trying to make films is that there's only us. There's no them. And if you want to figure out how to get through these tough times, it's only us, a them. And if anyone tells you there's a them, run away, right away, walk away, walk away quickly. Only us. We're in this together. I love the American spirit so much. I love our fortitude. I love our resolve. Yep. And you're yeah, we've so been through this. We've been, we've been through this before. This is unprecedented what's going on right now, but it's not without equivalence. You know, there have been, there've been 
you know, uh, diseases that have gone through Native American villages and wiped just about everybody out. Same with settlers' villages. There's been, you know, yellow fever and smallpox and cholera scares that have decimated whole communities. There was, of course, the Spanish influenza. But we've also got through many 19th century recession depressions. We got through the Great Depression. We got through the Civil War. We got through World War II. And how did we do it? Shared sacrifice. We were willing to understand that the American genius was for freedom, but that freedom involves attention. There's a kind of collective freedom, what we need, and there's an individual freedom, what I want. Right now, we're all saying, yup, I get it. It's what we need. I'm willing to do that because it's what we need. I'm willing to plant a victory garden. I'm willing to go without this metal. I'm willing to collect the metal I have and bring it down so it can be melted down into material for the war effort that's going to, you know, arm the Soviet army. It's going to arm the rest of the allies on the Western Front. You know, I'm going to do that. And I think, unfortunately, as we get into a computer and a media and a consumer culture, everything goes to me, me, what I want. And so this may be a beautiful, beautiful reset and wake-up call as painful and as hard and as difficult and as many people like your mom and my mom that are going to be lost. Uh, maybe we come out with a renewed sense of what our purpose is. Maybe we come out saying, you know what? Sure, being oppositional and making enemy of my next-door neighbor because they don't exactly believe what I believe in politically sells, but kind of it doesn't really, does it, in the long run? Who, who, who makes a profit off division? Not very American. If we don't come out of this with greater perspective and greater appreciation for our freedoms and the opportunity to be in and, and do whatever we please, then we are the most tone deaf of the tone yep. deaf. I will. Yeah, uh, no. yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think you've said it right. It is tone deafness. And sometimes we have ignored the possibilities for cohesion after 9-11. We all remember how we felt. Everybody's a New Yorker. Everybody's an American. The French were saying, je suis American. You know, we are all, there's a kind of solidarity that happened and, and somehow it got squandered and frittered away. That isn't going to happen now. We've already lost a 9-11 worth of people in the United States. And and her, I'm sorry to say, there's many, many more ahead of us. What pride or consideration do you give to the fact that your life's work is this master's course in celebration of the American fabric for generations to come. You know, I'm a filmmaker, and uh, I just want to make a good film. I work with a lot of talented people, so it's kind of unfair for me to just sit here and kind of represent it with, uh, you know, the the, the personal uh, pronoun I. Uh, as you know, covering sports, there's no I in team, and there's, there's a huge team that puts this together, and we make a film, and all we want to do is make it better. What is so satisfying, I don't think pride is quite the right uh, word because we know what pride comes before, um, is the in immense satisfaction we get from seeing school kids studying the Civil War series, uh, you know, 30 years, this year it's 30 years since it happened. Um, there's a you know online schooling taking place using our films. 
whether it's the Lewis and Clark film, whether it's the Dust Bowl or Prohibition or Vietnam or World War II or the Civil War or country music or jazz, whatever the subject of the film, it's out there being used today, today, somewhere and now not a school but in somebody's home. Um, that, that to me is really satisfying and it, it, it helps to cement why I've stayed in public broadcasting this whole time um, because it, the PBS stands for public broadcasting, not system, but service. I live in a tiny little village in New Hampshire. That's where I'm talking to you from. And, um, you know, any notoriety plus 50 cents gets you a cup of coffee. You know, <laughs> you're, you're measured by something a lot more important than the number of films you have on your resume. You know, I even have on my refrigerator a bunch of guys standing around in hell, uh, you know, with long tails and pointy ears. And they said, apparently my over 200 screen credits didn't mean a damn thing. You know, as Dr. <laughs> King said, it's the content of the character. So I think that for me, it's the work, the work, the work. Work is itself such an amazing thing. And to, you know, just stay in a small town where the second I put on any airs, you know, <laughs> there'll be somebody who'll look at me sideways and I'll go, oh, yes, sir. Sorry, sir. Merle Haggard fascinates me. And yeah. you got the opportunity to sit across from Merle. What was it like to sit across from Hag and have a conversation? Well, I didn't do it. My partner on the project, Dayton Duncan, did, and he said, and Julie Dunphy, our other producer, did. They said it was amazing. We'd been chasing him for a long time, and finally found him after a show or before a show in Las Vegas. And uh, it was not the last interview he did, but it was getting close to. You know, he's pretty long in the tooth. He, to me, as I said when the footage came back, oh, he's Zeus. You know, every time he speaks, it's the truth. You know, he opens when he's in the introduction. He says, it's about things that we can't see, you know, like dreams and songs and souls, you know. And that's what it is. It just goes back. He says that in the beginning of episode one, towards the end of episode eight, our last episode, Witten Marcel says, the art of the invisible. And between those two geniuses is everything. But, you know, Emmy Lou Harris said it a lot better than me. If you want to know about country music, you get a Merle Haggard record, any Merle Haggard record, and you put it on any song, any song, and start there. He's, <laughs> you know, he's, he, he with, with Hank and with Johnny and with Loretta and uh, with Dolly and with the Carters and, and Bill Monroe, that, that's, that's the crowded Mount Rushmore of country music, Chris Christopherson. I am so grateful for your time and your perspective and your work. And thank you so much, Mr. Burns. Have a great day. Stay safe. And uh, you, you too. Be Wish well. the best for you and your family. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. The thing that impresses me the most is the work. It's about the work. And when you look at his films and when you watch his films, the depth of the work and the obvious preparation and execution of that preparation and meticulous demand for excellence in every single facet is readily obvious. So damn impressive. It took eight years for the country music documentary, ten years for the Vietnam, and he said if they find out new information, they don't let a, a scene sit. They go and fix it. Like The attention to detail by this man is first class. So so in doing my study for the interview, 
I learned that for the country music documentary film, which was eight two-hour episodes, it 16 hours of content made it to air. He interviewed more than 101. So, so he interviewed 101 artists. That doesn't even include the peripheral voices. 101 artists and more than 175 hours of interviews. Think about that, man. That's unreal. And then to pare that down to 16 hours. Dude, I do a 25-minute interview with Tiger Woods, and I can't cut that down. I can't imagine the painstaking process. Can you imagine the stuff that didn't make it into that 16 hours? Imagine the utter gold that those guys had to carve out of that piece. And look, we, we focused mainly on the country music documentary. His documentaries on baseball and World War II and the Vietnam War are be just, they are so well done. With with all the interviews that he has, I think I'm going to leave you. I'm going to, I'm going to start Ken's, Ken Burns America and just release all the unseen audio from those interviews. I, can, I guarantee you this. You would you would emerge far more intelligent from the Ken Burns America than you ever will from the Marty Smith's America. We talk about country music in a different way than he does. <laughs> Yeah, he he doesn't talk about cold beer, but yeah. I I really liked how he was talking about he does stuff on the United States, but he does stuff on the on the U.S. but on the lowercase U.S. too. Like that yeah. was so profound, so simple, but yet so deep. Uh, I am a better man for having had that twenty twenty five minutes with him. And y'all need to understand something about this. First of all, I will implore you, especially while we're in quarantine like this. Ben, don't binge watch Tiger King. Go binge watch Ken Burns' work. Yeah, go, go to PBS on their website, and you can stream all of these episodes and documentaries. They, you will be such a more well-educated human being about where we came from and the decisions that had to be made in certain instances. And as I was studying, he has so many films yet to come. His contract, I think this now don't take this for gospel, but I'm pretty sure his contract with PBS goes through 2030. They should just give him a lifetime contract. Yeah. He has movies on so many amazing things coming. Ernest Hemingway. I think he's doing a, a Barack Obama film on and on. Just fascinating content. So go watch that. Go binge watch that. How would you like to be the guest after we air this interview on this podcast? Well, I hope that my excitement for having had the time with him is palpable. Y'all don't understand how long Travis chased this. It's been six months probably, right? It was a couple rounds. And then I, you know, when the quarantine happened, the one silver lining for us is, I know that people are home, and so I went back to emails that I've sent out and fired them off again, trying to get some people, and uh, Ken Burns is, has a crazy schedule, and luckily we were able to get put in it, and uh, yeah, this I, I, I first emailed him when the country music documentary came out. So so take, uh, that, see, that's interesting to me. 
take the listeners through the process of what do you do when you're trying to book a guy like Ken Burns who is so in demand? Do you go to PBS's website and click contact? Like, how's that work? I've, I can't remember exactly for Ken, but people send out, you know, hey, you should have this person on, you should have this person on, and, and they're great names and ideas, but trying to find the contact info is half the battle. And I was able to find, uh, I can't remember if it was a publicist or manager, whoever for Ken, and email them, and then you're hoping that they respond. And with someone like Ken, I can only imagine the requests that are coming in, and you're just hoping that they make contact. If they make contact, then you've you've got that door open. And they said, unfortunately, he wasn't available at the time, so, you know, thank you. And I, I always tell them, you know, if something changes, feel free to reach back out. And then this happened, and so I went back into my emails and found the email and just followed up and said, hey, you know, Hope you you know you and your family are safe and healthy. I was wondering if, with the crazy schedule, if Ken might be available to come on. And that's the you know how it is. We had Gerald McCoy on a couple weeks ago, but the first time we had him on, it took a while for him. These people live crazy schedules, so reaching out and trying to get a guest within a week is usually very tough. You have to build these out further in advance. Well. You do such a good job at it, and I'm so grateful. It's funny. I, y'all, I wear Travis out. I'll, I'll hear something or read something or see something. Who was it a couple of weeks? Oh, I randomly will send Travis a text out of nowhere. Go get me Kid Rock. Like, that's the directive. Go get me Kid Rock, please. I do use they're, manners. They're very out of the blue, too. It's just like we'll be talking about something or we're not even texting all of a sudden. It's, yeah, hey, let's get Kid Rock. All right. And, uh, you know, like I've told you, I, I love a challenge. And, you know, at times people will just say no or they don't get back. But if that's the worst that happens. The best is they say yes, and all of a sudden we have an interview with Ken Burns. There was there was so much more I wanted to get to with Ken. I wanted to know what he feels like his – what is his proudest work? I wanted to know which film troubled him the most or gave him the most difficulty in, in edit. I wanted to know uh, about Johnny Cash's complexities and what he learned from guys like Marty Stewart, who was such an integral voice. To me, Marty Stewart was the thread that wove from Maybell Carter all the way through Eric Church. It's, he, it's was the, he was that one voice that was able to weave through the entire 16-hour documentary and really sew it all together. Is he the most underrated, like, country artist? So in terms like of, yeah, he I mean, always, he doesn't of, always get the credit that the other people are going to get, but the talent that he has and everybody that he's worked with, like you just said, is unmatched. Yes, there's no doubt. I mean, and, 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 and when you think about the fact that he played in Johnny Cash's band when he was playing professionally as a little boy, uh, it's, I mean, it's, and, and you talk about country music historians. I saw a piece on CBS Sunday morning a couple of years ago. Marty, and it may be somewhere else now, but at the time it was in storage. He has a collection of country music memorabilia that is unparalleled, unmatched, including the Country Music Hall of Fame. He has like, he has, uh, like Marty Robbins original jacket you know that he wore in el paso or whatever he has the most unbelievable collection 
of country music memorabilia ever. Uh, because of course he does. But But, I wanted to ask so many questions. You can guarantee that I'll be sending them the link when we post this and then also it'll be in the email. We would love to have him on again to get more into the country music whenever he is free. Cause that's, I tell a lot of guests, but there's some that I, I mean it even more. When they're available, we're available because they'll ask what our schedule is. And with the podcast world, we are very flexible. With some guests, it's you tell us. That's right. Well, and great job getting him, brother. And I'm so grateful for his time and, and his perspective and insight and, and, and like depth, man, and his passion. He just exudes it. And you guys know, man, when, when somebody has that, there's a lot of talented people. There's a lot of well-accomplished people. But when you have passion, it takes your entire catalog, your entire body of work to a whole other plane because you feel it in your soul. And that's how I feel about that interview we just did. That man, that man lives his work and I'm grateful for his work. Uh, in this time, I just want to say, uh, make sure to continue to social distance, guys. Make sure to continue to stay away from each other. That goes completely against the primal human need for togetherness. But right now, that's what we have to do. But here's here's how you can still stay together. This is something that I've been trying to do. Is I'm not a big phone person, but because I live alone and so the self-quarantine is – once a day or maybe every so often I'll just FaceTime somebody or uh, I hit up some college friends and we had a, a Zoom happy hour. So there's still ways that you can reach out to people that you normally maybe wouldn't talk to and stay connected virtually but follow the self-quarantine social distancing. I'm really grateful to all the country artists and and amazingly talented people who are doing live streams. And I, if it's if a country artist is doing a live stream, then I'm watching it. And, you know, I, I did a I did an event uh, actually the day after we did the interview with Ken Burns on Instagram Live with my good friend, Justin Moore, where we did a storytellers event. And he played five or six songs and we just had a great discussion about the passions and the inspirations behind those specific songs. And because of that, Lowe's Home Improvement Warehouse donated $25,000 to the American Red Cross in Justin's name and in my name, and those funds were allocated to first responders in Nashville, Tennessee, where a tornado went through right before corona stopped the world, and to Jonesboro, Arkansas, near Justin's hometown, that, that just went through there. And so these things are making a difference. And I'm so grateful for everybody giving your time in this very unique and unprecedented time. These Those streamed concerts have been a joy to me to just, one, it provides entertainment, but then to see these artists scaled down, you know, just them and a guitar yep. and maybe, maybe a, a friend that's on a guitar and hear them, I mean, Seeing Luke Combs cover Fast Cars is – I've probably watched that video ten times over. I sent him a text about that, and I just told – I just said thank you. I said, brother, I know that it's just what you do, but for those of us who are such passionate consumers of what you and your peers do, thank you. And I mean that 
I mean that uh, across the board, whether it's Luke or it's Justin or it's Luke Bryan or whomever it is, Morgan Wallen. I've watched a bunch of different guys do these shows, and all of them are just just tremendous. So thank you so much to Ken Burns for your time. We know how precious it is. Thank you to all of you out there, you first responders, nurses, and doctors who are on the front line right now, helping people, treating people, saving lives, and impacting our nation and our and the globe so positively and so dramatically and so selflessly. Thank you to our law enforcement officials, our, our firemen, and our military all over the world. Uh, we appreciate your sacrifice so much. Y'all have a great week. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know what you thought of this interview because we loved it. Take care. That's Marty Smith's America. We appreciate y'all.